Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is David Feldman. He is a partner at Hiller PC. He is also co-founder and president, CEO at Skip Intro Advisors, uh, which is a cannabis-focused consulting agency. We're going to talk to him about what's going on in cannabis, particularly around the capital markets, how are companies you know, acquiring the capital they need to grow and scale, our company's growing and scaling right now. Like, what's what's the kind of the state of the world on that side of things? Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about the debt market as well, just kind of how companies are using these different resources to both grow, to fund their operations, to manage their business. Obviously, we've been through a lot, both in the end of 2019 and then 2020 with COVID. Cannabis declared essential service, so it's still kind of running, but uh, obviously there's a lot of kind of stress in the industry and kind of talk about David a little bit about how that stress is playing out and what we see happening in in some of these companies and and what might be happening in the coming months and quarters. So with that, David, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Bruce. I'm really glad to be back. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So let's do a quick background for those that uh, didn't meet you on our previous episode. Just give us a little bit of background on you, how you got involved in cannabis, and then we can kind of dig into some of these topics. Sure. Uh, I'm a Wharton grad, former chair of uh, the Wharton Business School's uh, Worldwide Alumni Association, very 
loyal and active uh, alum. Did a bunch of years of big firms, then had my own firms for many years. Then uh, in the most recent five years, I was co-lead of the 60 lawyer cannabis practice of a top 100 law firm here in the United States. I have since come back to my boutique roots at Hiller PC, one of the considered the top 11 law firms in cannabis, according to Green Market Report. Uh, mm-hmm. my, my involvement in the industry came in around 2013. Uh, my first two books were on reverse mergers, where companies go public by merging with an already public company. And, you know, most of the companies that went public around that time did so through reverse mergers. And so I inherited a few of those back then. So seven years is kind of like 50 years in can- yeah. cannabis slash dog years. So I've been around around this world quite a bit and come a long way from the first conference I attended with about maybe 20 uh, or so uh, <laughs> booths at the Javits Center to where we are today with 30,000 people in uh, in Vegas. And hopefully one day we'll be back to that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Obviously, uh, lots, of, lots of disruption to the event conference world these days. So let's give a quick kind of context. So, you know, 20, 2019 was a somewhat tumultuous year for cannabis companies, particularly on the capital markets and valuations. And then we hit 2020. Give us your kind of take on how kind of what happened with cannabis in 2019. Why do we have these kind of ups and downs? And then what have you generally seen being the response or, or the impact of, of COVID on some of these cannabis companies as we go into 2020 here? Well, you know, there was this crazy frenzy. They started calling it the green rush at one point where the stocks and interest in these particularly public cannabis companies through most of 2018 was extraordinary, out of control. The valuations went significantly high. People would call me two years ago and say, wow, I'm excited. I want to invest in one of these marijuana companies. Which one should I buy? And my answer always was, (laughs) you know, none. Because they were all so dramatically overvalued. And yes, you could think that they, that would go on. You know, the minute uh, my rule has always been in all these crazy bubbles, the minute somebody says this could go on forever, that's when you run for the hills. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sure enough, it took, you know, basically Bruce Linton being thrown out of Canopy um, yep. and a few other related acts where they said, hey, wait a minute, we can't just focus on growing these companies at the expense of moving towards profitability forever. And yep. so that led to uh, the beginning of you know, the significant drop and come down to earth of a lot of the stocks. And now, well, you have some interesting buying opportunities as long as, and, and interesting investment opportunities, uh, so long as the companies start being a bit more realistic about what those valuations are. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like, say, January, kind of pre, pre-COVID impact, that the prices were more or less realistic or normalized? Or, I mean, do you think we had an appropriate correction coming into 2020? What's your feeling on that? I did. And and it's it's hard to figure out how you want to value a company yeah. that is not profitable. And I'm old enough to remember back in the internet era when companies were basically valued based on their run rates. Yeah. And, and the more their their monthly expenses were, the more the company was worth, as crazy as that sounded. Yeah. And here we did it based on revenues, but we can ignore the fact, oh, how much debt do they have? Doesn't matter. How much burden, you know, how much mm-hmm. overhead, how much are they losing every quarter? And so, yes, I think in January we had reached a point of, of where I was starting to say to people, there are some good buying opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then things got worse, obviously, at the beginning of the pandemic. And then now the stocks are coming back again. Yeah. I guess, what do you characterize it? Was the beginning of this just kind of general uncertainty, a little bit of panic about what's going on in the world? So everything kind of devalued? Or was there real, you know, specific direct impact of COVID on cannabis 
companies in various ways that really kind of hit that valuation? And is this turnaround really kind of changes in the market or people just kind of saying, okay, well, life goes on, we're going to have, the businesses are going to continue in some way, shape or form. So they, they have value and we should be investing and continuing to grow. What's your take on that? Well, there's some element to the movement of cannabis stocks that ties into the overall market for small caps generally. So that I think was part of what led that initial downturn during the uncertainty of the early stages of the pandemic. Once it was clear that cannabis would be essential, that it would remain open, that in fact, many companies were seeing record sales, despite some challenges in terms of supply chain and some other things, uh, problems in the hemp market, the feeling was this is a significant long-term opportunity. People are waking up to realize that there are tremendous medical potential benefits with the plant and it's becoming more and more socially acceptable and so on. And I think that's what played in a lot. And now you're starting to see some companies that are getting closer and closer to, and in some cases, achieving positive cash flow. And that is definitely helping those companies a lot. And you're seeing the rest of the companies that are struggling try to get there, actually make it a, a priority now to shed unprofitable operations, to shed things like real estate, to raise cash. And you know you have more and more it was just happening in February. I went to my last in-person cannabis conference in February in Miami, the Benzinga conference. And for the first time, we were really seeing almost across the board, more experienced professional managers coming into these companies rather than the sort of initial cannabis cowboys, as I called them, uh, mm -hmm. who built these original companies who were risk takers and strong personalities, but not necessarily the best people to run a business. So mm -hmm. those were the trends that were positive that I think are leading towards the stocks improving now. Yeah. And from an investor point of view, I mean, if before it was kind of this revenue and potential growth, you know, valuation, driving valuations, what are investors looking for at this point, given where we are in the world, where we are in the cannabis market? What are the things they're really looking for in companies to place money? So much depends on so many things to answer that question. But in general, certain investors are looking for kind of asset-based protection. They want to, they'll do a nice, healthy debt deal as long as there's some real estate or something else behind it. That's in there. But also, I think they're looking for strong management. They're looking for something unique. I think this multi-state operator model in the United States that has grown the initial group of companies and seen quite a number of them really struggle and several of them on the verge of being you know, either out of business or sold or broken up, unfortunately. And I think where we're seeing opportunities now are companies that are single state operators are doing well if they're in the right state. We're seeing some of the multinational operators, a new term I've been I've been hearing MNO, where operations in Colombia and other places or, or Israel, et cetera, or Europe, uh, where 30 countries have legalized uh, medical marijuana. There's tremendous opportunity in the Caribbean and so on. I think the biotech sector of cannabis, where companies are going and doing proper, normal, full clinical trials, leading to hopefully FDA-approved federally legal drugs similar to Epidiolex is an exciting opportunity. The real estate market remains strong in cannabis as well. And I think that's where, and there are some multi-state operators that have figured out the, the secret sauce of saying, all right, we can be multi-state, but we don't have to be every state. <laughs> yeah. And if they say we're going to be, there's one company in particular that is in just three states, but they're a multi-state operator, they're profitable, they're successful, they're public. And these are the types of companies that you know, are carefully choosing where they go as they do multi-state is. And, and I think if I were to bet, I would 
you know, I'm a New York guy and, and I'm hoping that the Northeast market is going to really explode in the next five years. Mm-hmm. But I also think that California is going to remain the epicenter of the cannabis business, especially as we move towards federal legalization. And there are a number of companies who, have, who are in California only who have said, we're just staying here and we don't see a need to be in other states because once federal legalization happens and we can ship anywhere, everyone's going to want California weed. So yeah. I would take a look at focusing on those as well. Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, I'm always kind of curious how that's going to play out with federal legalization. Is it, I mean, states have invested so much in their local economies or their local cannabis markets. I mean, do you, do you anticipate that it really is going to be an open federal market or is this going to be more like it's going to be federally legal, but states are going to kind of set up their own, you know, kind of uh, systems and barriers and taxations and things like that to kind of protect their local state markets to some extent? Well, once federal legalization happens, and we'll talk about where that's at in a second, you know, there's going to be both state and federal regulation, much as there is for alcohol or cigarettes mm-hmm. and so on. So the federal regulation might focus more on things like advertising and promotion and and uh, trade issues, whereas the states are going to regulate the things that they've been regulating, which is how do you grow it, how do you sell it, and, and how do you distribute mm-hmm. it. And as to the federal legalization, I'm just working on a blog piece right now that people assume that you need to vote for the Democratic for president in order to <laughs> increase the likelihood of federal legalization. I disagree. And I believe that what does need to happen is the Senate needs to change hands. If the Senate becomes Democrat controlled, I think you have a much better chance of federal legalization under either president that's running now. Because Trump has said, you know, he he changes his mind a lot. But on (laughs) this, he's been consistent since his Mm -hmm. first campaign, where he said on Bill O'Reilly's show that he is, quote, 100 percent in favor of medical marijuana, and that he believes that recreational or adult use should be decided by the states. And he has said to Cory Gardner, a senator from Colorado, Republican senator, bring me a state's rights bill and I will sign it. Mm -hmm. And the only impediments to that right now are Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, who are both refusing to allow anything to move forward that is anything like that. And so if they are no longer in control of those committees, I believe the Senate has a much better chance of passing something. And I think Trump would sign it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's fascinating that the kind of the political angles or facets to this discussion and, and who's on what side and why, it, it gets actually quite complicated when you dig into the individual senators' positions. And, and in the meantime, yeah. um, seven states are going to vote in November yeah. for some form of enhanced uh, legalization of either medical or recreational use. And possibly as many as 10, they're still counting signatures in three other states. So that's moving forward either way. But this uh, federal state conflict needs to come to an end. Yeah, it doesn't help anyone. It just hurts everyone. You know, I'm curious on the, you know, as the market kind of sorts itself out and some of these companies that have not been able to reach profitability or don't reach profitability in the short time frame here are not viable companies are not viable assets. What actually happens to them? Because I'm, you know, in a quote unquote kind of regular market, you would have bankruptcy laws, you would have various tools at companies' disposals to restructure, to deal with debt, to kind of correct the course for themselves, get into a place that they can be viable, but you know, cannabis companies can't 
can't use federal bankruptcy, you know, as an option. You know, some of these assets have, you know, lots of restrictions around who can hold the licenses. How do you envision these assets kind of getting sorted out? You mentioned some of these are going to be, you know, kind of broken up or they're going to have to, you know, sell off various components that are not profitable. Is this going to play out like a normal market or is there going to be kind of interesting different things that happens with cannabis? Well, it's one of the challenges, obviously, being in this industry is that federal bankruptcy is not available. And so when we represent and we just worked on a major nine figure debt deal that I'm not allowed to talk about, but the the concern of lenders is they don't have the normal protections for themselves in bankruptcy court, which yeah. would allow them to go in and basically take over a company. So we work hard in these debt deals to plug in strong powers and rights of the lenders in the event of default. And what we're starting to see is that, well, step one is you restructure the debt, right? And in, in a number of cases, that's starting to happen where they're you know, imposing much higher interest rates. They're taking a lot more equity. Uh, the next step is, and a few are already pursuing this, you know, just give up and say, all right, lender, you now own 97% of the company and we'll let the public have the other 3% and we wish you well. I think there are others who are looking at an M&A approach and looking to just put themselves on the market and hope that their assets can be taken. But the problem is selling a company that has, you know, 40 licenses in 10 states is an enormous undertaking. Yeah. Because, you know, you're not allowed to sell a license. And so they have to sell them subject to state approval. And yeah. those state approvals can be really difficult to get through, even if you're a solid, you know, impressive, well-capitalized company. There are certain states like Colorado, that, and especially right now, with the state governments effectively shut down, yeah. the ability to even process these has been an issue. And then you have to be careful because there's all the antitrust issues going on and Bill Barr, you know, admittedly targeting uh, cannabis mergers just because he doesn't like the industry. <laughs> Motivated. I don't even know. But what happens with the license if... if you know, you can't sell it. The company's not viable. It ceases operations. Is it just a dormant license? I mean, what happened? What what is the what is the process for <laughs> start dealing with licenses that are licenses that are unused? Well, it really depends on the state. But in most states, there are reporting obligations, there are renewal obligations, and if they don't have the money and the wherewithal to pursue those, uh, those licenses will will be gone. And you know, but until until some action is required with the state, yeah. uh, the licenses generally will just sit there. They'll sit there. And then and when they're gone, I guess it all depends on the state. If they if that triggers, then they can issue a new license to someone else, or if it just like until the next round of, you know, license, you know, opening up of new licenses, it, it would just it would just lower the number of licenses in the state by one. Yes, because I say yes because both of those yeah. things are true depending on the state. You know, you can think of it like stock in a company, like does it come back to the quote treasury and to be reissued? And it's and it is an issue in states that have limited number of permanent yeah. licenses. Uh, but in general, the states that have a limited number of licenses, if a license goes away, they can reissue it. Yeah. Interesting. And so in terms of the debt side of this, I'm curious what, you know, we always talk about kind of the equity side and people, you know, issuing stock and, you know, capitalizing that way. I mean, I, I would imagine there's a, a stronger shift towards debt right now. What are some of these debt deals looking like? What are the complications of, of doing debt deals? You know, how are people structuring it? I'm just kind of curious because I think that's somewhat new to the market or it's, you know, hasn't been as much of the focus of the market. How is this playing out? Well, putting aside the sort of in extremist deals, for example, Acreage, you know, just borrowed money at a 60% interest rate, yeah. putting aside that 
you know, anomaly, <laughs> a company that's doing sort of okay that needs to raise money. You know, of the deals we're seeing, they're almost entirely financings for public companies, number one. Number two, mm-hmm. the vast majority of the deals we're seeing are debt deals. And the good news for borrowers, for companies is a few years ago, these debt deals were very high interest, 17, 18, 19%, even more sometimes, plus equity kickers and some other things. Now it's it's settled down to maybe around 10. And what I've gotten my clients to do that are involved in this is to focus a lot more on the downside than they used to, mm-hmm. where it was all about how do I ride this up? Now it's all right, what do I do if it goes away or if, or if they're in default? And we're putting in a lot more protections where in some cases requiring personal guarantees or putting up collateral that is maybe even outside the company. Somebody owns some real estate somewhere, uh, doing everything we can to protect uh, the lender's downside. But what's interesting is it's because these public companies think their stocks are so undervalued that they are preferring debt deals to equity because they don't want to cause some. Yeah, they don't give up that pricing, that valuation. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, are, are, are the companies just slightly delusional in terms of what their valuation really is? Is this, are they legitimate, you know, knowing that, hey, look, in six months and 12 months, you know, the world is going to be quite different. Our valuation is going to be quite different. Why would we, why would we give up a bunch of equity at this valuation when we can take debt, you know, bridge ourselves for 12 months, get, get to the better place that our, that our valuation is higher, and then we can switch it over to debt equity and, and be at a better valuation? I think these entrepreneurs that saw their net worths zoom to a billion and then back down to like 40 million um, are still dealing with a bit of PTSD about that. And even though if they were really honest with themselves, they'd realize that the billion dollar valuations were unrealistic, indefensible and unsustainable, Mm -hmm. they still can't bring themselves to say, all right, you know, I guess we're just a normal growth company now that has a, you know, 70 million valuation based on our 10 million of revenues, which would still be amazing. Yeah. They're not ready to accept it, it seems. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, there's so, uh, I'm sure there's some psychology explanation for this, but it's, it's so, it's so hard. What, what you gain on the upside is so disproportionate <laughs> to what you lose on the downside that it, I, I can see it's just like people don't want to accept the loss, right? It's just, it's too hard for them to admit that they're, you know, they never really had that valuation. I mean, it was a, it was a blip in the process, but yeah. Well, you know, again, there was this perception that this was going to be the golden child of Wall Street for, for years to come. And even we haven't even talked about the SPACs yet. You know, there's there's all these special purpose acquisition companies looking to buy cannabis companies. But all of them have raised, you know, north of 100 million. And they're starting to discover that there are actually very few companies that are big, yeah. enough, to, that are big enough to qualify for merging with them. And they're trying to see whether they need to rethink their their strategies a bit. Well, let's, let's talk about that one because I've had a couple of conversations about it and I'm not sure I completely understand it still. But it's I, this, this SPAC, the Special Purpose Acquisition Company, is essentially the entity that's get set up, gets funded for the purposes of going out and doing acquisitions. But there's some rule, there's some restrictions around how long you can, like you have to do it in a certain time frame and the deals have to be a certain size or something. Give us some insight on what these things really are, why they've come about, and what's the status of them? Sure. I mean, a SPAC is basically just a public shell uh, like any other in the sense that you do an IPO of an empty company. Uh, you raise, uh, there's there's a group of SPACs that raise kind of 30 to 50 million, and then there's mm-hmm. a group that raise north of 100 million. And now there's a bunch that have raised north of a billion 
um, not for cannabis, but for other yeah. things. And Goldman Sachs has done one. Anyway, it's the darling of Wall Street right now. And the reason it's so attractive is they raise all this money. They have usually around a 15 month period where the goal of this public company that's got money sitting in the bank is to find a company that's private that wants to go public and access this cash and do it quicker than an IPO or maybe around the same time, but have this, quote, certainty that the cash Mm -hmm. is there. And underwriters come in and raise all this money from hedge funds and now more and more institutional money. And the investors like it because they can consider the money, quote, invested while it's sitting in the SPAC. Um, And it earns interest and it's protected. And if the deal, if they don't get a deal done, they get all their money back plus interest. And even when a deal is proposed, each investor gets the right to opt in or opt out. They don't vote on the deals they used to, but they now they now have an opt in vote so they can say, you know what? I don't like it. Give me my money back. And so one of the illusions of SPACs is that the money is there for a private company to access. The truth is. It's only there if they agree to stay in. And so you often have to put in a provision that says, I'm private company. I want to merge with you. And I know you have a hundred million, but I know some people may not stay, but I'm willing to do the deal as long as there's at least, you know, 50 million still there or whatever it is. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then they complete the deal and they get to go right to NASDAQ. And, but the, the stock exchanges have limited what cannabis companies they'll allow. But for the most part, these cannabis SPACs, and there are about six to 10 of them now are looking for the types of deals that they know NASDAQ will approve. And and what I mean, what are the generally what are some of the restrictions or things that NASDAQ wouldn't approve that it's not eligible for these systems? So their general rule is they they don't want any company that is engaged in federally illegal activity. And that means as of now, they won't touch any company that, as we say, touches the plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these multi-state operators and so on wouldn't qualify they would if it's in a country where it's fairly legal, like Canada, and the first cannabis companies that went public in, on NASDAQ yeah. were Canadian companies like Tilray and Aurora and Canopy and all those. But they have started to take these ancillary businesses in the United States, like what's now called Akerna, which used to be MJ Freeway, and there's a uh, vape company as well. And so that as long as these companies don't say we may be aiding and abetting a federal crime, they will let them go public. But NASDAQ has been very picky. They've turned down a number of cannabis companies. Mm-hmm. They claim it's because of, you know, their financial strength. And and the New York Stock Exchange has not yet. Uh, they've, they've got one real estate, a REIT, that they have uh, approved called IIPR. And uh, New York Stock Exchange has allowed hemp and CBD companies to get okay. listed uh, because they're now federally legal. And as I say, NASDAQ is limiting themselves to a small, carefully chosen handful of U.S. ancillary businesses, and that seems to be working okay. Yeah, I'm always curious how they deal with things like um, like testing labs and things like that. Who are they're not? I mean, they're kind of indirectly. I mean, they're taking possession of material at small amounts for doing testing purposes. But do they qualify, or would they get kicked out because they're they're quote unquote plant touching, or are they not because that's not their core business, or they're really not in the business of the plant? They're just testing it. It's very funny you raise that because literally yesterday I got an email from a testing lab that said. We're thinking of going public and we want to go to NASDAQ. Can we? Yeah. And, and my answer was, I don't know. You know <laughs> I, I, I think if you're a testing lab, you technically touch the plant, but you're not involved in growing it or selling it. Mm-hmm. But arguably, you're involved in the process of getting it ready for sale. Mm-hmm. I think NASDAQ is more likely to say no to something like that than yes. Yeah. Yeah. On the cautious side. Yeah. 
You mentioned a little bit about the Canadian market and some of this intermarketing. We're on a more global scale or kind of global view here. How what's interesting for you in terms of what's happening with cannabis when you look at you know all the different countries involved at this point? As I mentioned, I think the multi-state operator model is is um, is failing uh, with a few exceptions. The single state uh, operators, a number of them, are doing very well. And now there's this new term called multinational operator (MNO) that has uh, found its way into a little bit of the lexicon. And we, in particular, in our firms, are looking much more closely at the global market. Uh, and there are places like Colombia where there's a lot of money being invested, where there's tremendous amount of land to grow. There's a very strong willingness in the government to allow it. Labor costs are very low. Growing conditions are superb. Uh, there's still a lot of corruption. There's still a lot of issues yeah. and, 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 you know, gangs and whatever. But mm -hmm. Europe also, you know, there are 30 countries worldwide that have legalized uh, medical marijuana nationally. And so there's tremendous opportunity in those countries. Israel is doing groundbreaking research. I'm working with some countries in Australia. And so I think the opportunity now for smart investors is to say, how can we play in these other emerging markets, especially since you, you avoid the legal issues? Because, for example, in, in countries like the UK, they have fully legalized medical marijuana in the UK. And so yeah. if you invest in a UK cannabis company, there's not a legal issue. It's a fully legal business. Yeah. Are we at risk here in the US of kind of you know, falling behind because of our kind of sort of backwards or, you know, the, the situation we're in with the federal side. I mean, is this, you know, are, are these countries going to be, or is this global market going to outpace us or, you know, is U.S. still such a huge market and, you know, e even with this complexity is still, there's things going on there. I'm just kind of curious wh where you put us from the U.S. point of view on the global scale right now. Well, I think you have to distinguish between medical and adult use to answer that question. And mm -hmm. It's an interesting question as to how the world market is going to develop in terms of medical versus adult use. And I think medical is going to grow rapidly. I don't think there's a question about that. And, you know, one of the things that's frustrated me is I don't know why Congress doesn't just take up a bill to legalize medical marijuana. Yeah. That would seem to be non-controversial. And you would think that would get through. But for some reason, I think a lot of the cannabis advocates feel if they did that, they wouldn't do anything else after and there would be no shot for adult use. Yeah. So I, I sort of understand that. But to answer your question, I think that we are ahead of almost all the world. In turn, I mean, we, you know, 11 states have legalized recreational use, uh, including a large, surprisingly large portion of our population, including California. And there's only two or three other countries that have done that. So we're ahead in terms of, you know, adult use. But I think we're behind in terms of getting medical marijuana, the national attention it deserves. Yeah. David, that's been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? So our law firm site is called uh, HillerPC.com. You can check out our consulting business at SkipIntroAdvisors.com. Uh, you can also take a look at my blog, which is DavidFeldmanBlog.com. I write about cannabis and the regulatory markets, as well as capital markets in general, and entrepreneurship. And uh, best way to get me is dfeldman at hillerpc.com. Great. I'll make sure that all those are in the show notes. Highly recommend folks check out David's blog. Um, some great content there. He's, he's a, been writing for a while, has uh, really great pieces. If you want to really kind of dig into some of these topics, he's got a, He's probably got a blog on it. So. Thank you. Checks in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. It's great insight, and I look forward to keeping in touch. You bet. My pleasure, my friend. 
You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.